don't have a five-year career plan even today. And I certainly didn't when I was 21, 22, graduating from college. I know my values. I know what I'm interested in. I know that I want to work for people with integrity and with people with integrity and a sense of service. That has always been my career plan, and I'm sticking to it. Hello, and welcome to Agnes Scott College's podcast, Journeys to Leadership, where we explore the paths of inspiring women leaders from around the globe. I'm Leo Kediazak, president of Agnes Scott, and the host of this podcast. I hope that our guest stories not only encourage you, our listeners and leaders of today and tomorrow, but they also inspire you as you take the next steps in your own journey. Today's guest was named Best On-Air Personality by the Georgia Association of Broadcasters and was the award-winning Atlanta-based host of NPR's All Things Considered. She has interviewed a wide array of icons, including filmmakers, singers, UN ambassadors, and more. Her journalism has garnered awards from the Edward R. Murrow Awards, the National Academy of Television Arts and Sciences Southeast, the Society of Professional Journalists, and Public Radio News Directors, Inc. In 2015 and 2016, Georgia Trend Magazine in the Atlanta Business Chronicle named Bevington among the 40 under 40 leaders making a positive impact in Georgia. She is a journalist, broadcaster, public speaker, advocate, and so much more. Please join me in welcoming the Emmy Award-winning journalist and president of the World Affairs Council of Atlanta, Ricky Bevington. Welcome to Journeys to Leadership, Ricky. We're delighted to have you. It's so great to be here, Lee. Thank you so much for having me. On Journeys to Leadership, we understand that leadership doesn't just happen. It's a journey. During our time together today, we want to explore your journey. The ups, the downs, the surprises, all of it. Or as much as we can get into today's segment. So let's begin. Tell us a little bit about where you grew up, Ricky. Well, I was born right here in Atlanta in Piedmont Hospital to two native Atlantans. When I was 11 months old, they whisked me away to the Northeast because they were both went to graduate school in the Boston area. So I ended up being raised in the Northeast. However, both sides of my extended family were in Atlanta. You had the best of both worlds. You had Atlanta <laughs> and the Northeast growing up. I did. Boston, Atlanta, Boston, Atlanta, a lot of flights back and forth, summers with grandparents in the South. So I really do call myself really a, a hybrid, but I was born to Atlantans in Atlanta. That's fantastic. So what was it like growing up? Well, you know, my parents were really hardworking people, really um, academically ambitious and professionally ambitious, but I had a, you know, just a suburban little girl upbringing. I had an older brother. We spent most of our time outside playing. So I was such an athlete. I was a super tomboy, roller skating, riding my bike, uh, pickup soccer, regular soccer, just running around in the woods. Actually, we used to play all these games like chase each other as though we were Marines in the woods. So I just had a, a very simple, I mean, I want to say it's idyllic. I don't know if an idyllic childhood exists, but of certainly a safe and supportive childhood in a, in a lovely bedroom community outside of Boston. 
um, and mostly doing athletics. And, you know, I'd get my homework done. And then as soon as I got my homework done, I could go out to play. And I enjoyed growing up in the Northeast. When I left the Northeast, I thought, well, now I'm going to really discover what America's like. <laughs> so I highly recommend that people not only travel, but even live in other parts of the country, because it's in many ways that our country can feel like different countries just regionally. So I, I'm grateful for my multi-region background. So when you were growing up, running around in the woods and playing, did you imagine, oh, I'm going to be a major broadcast journalist, or I'm going to run the World Affairs Council? What was your dream? My only dream was to be a model. And the caveat of being a model was I would never be a Pepsi spokesperson because that was a betrayal of Coca-Cola. Absolutely. <laughs> that was, so when Michael Jackson was dating myself in the 80s, was the Michael was the Pepsi spokesperson, I just thought, terrible, terrible decision-making on Michael Jackson's part. Um, so, I mean, that's really the extent of my ambitions. I had no ideas about my future, um, which I think is what childhood should be. To have the pressure of worrying about your future is not what being eight years old is for. Being eight years old is for worrying about what shoes you're wearing to school the next day or winning a soccer game on Saturday. So, uh, no, I, you know, Lee, I never, um, I've always just followed my gut. I am not a planner. I don't have a five-year career plan even today. And I certainly didn't when I was 21, 22, graduating from college. I know my values. I know what I'm interested in. I know that I want to work for people with integrity and with people with integrity and a sense of service. That has always been my career plan, and I'm sticking to it. So you're grounded in your values, but tell us a little bit about your path. I mean, so how did you get here? Well, I ended up going to a private boarding school in Vermont in my sophomore year of high school. And I, that really started me, I think, on a path to leadership. I had, I just wasn't really thriving. I didn't fit in in my public high school and in my town, even though I'd grown up there. I mean, every teenager sort of, you know, you fit in or you don't, there's all sorts of pressures. So I needed a smaller community. So I went to the Putney School in Southern Vermont, which is on a dairy farm. I think there's 200 students total. So I had a class of 40. And okay, I, wait, a... I have to stop you, Ricky. I have to ask you a question. So yeah. did you ever milk a cow? That was part of the curriculum. All right. So the, the, the part of the, the educational philosophy of the Putney School dates back to post-World War One America. And the idea that the Industrial Revolution was drawing us away from some basic skills, whether it be raising our own food, even entertaining ourselves. So the educational philosophy of the Putney School is that you do it all. We milk the cows, we fed the chickens, we tap trees for the maple syrup, we grew the lettuce, we cleaned the classrooms. In addition to an incredible arts curriculum, whether it be welding or ceramics or weaving or photography, and then, of course, a rigorous academic curriculum. Needless to say, it was very, very busy. And I think it's a really smart approach for teenagers. Just keep them really busy. Get them up at 5 a.m. They've got them out the cows. They're too tired to get into trouble. 
<laughs> so it was really nice. So um, from Putney, I went to, I was ready for the city after three years in the countryside. And I went to Barnard College in New York City. A woman's college, I might say. A woman's college. And I'll tell you, Lee, I knew right away that I wanted a women's college. It was actually never a doubt. My junior year of high school, you know, there's probably 20, maybe 20 kids in my physics class. My One of my best friends, he's still a friend, he kept interrupting me in physics class. And I remember thinking, is this what I hear about, you know, men kind of having more confidence in science and math and women? I've read, read these articles. This must be what that's like, because... I wasn't very strong in physics, but I, when I had something to contribute, I wanted to be able to finish my sentence. And so I thought, well, maybe if I just was in a class with women, I would just feel more comfortable to make mistakes or maybe not get interrupted as much. And um, so I actually applied to Bernard early decision. And I knew that obviously it's a larger Columbia University community. So my social life would be very big and rich and diverse. And New York City is obviously big and rich and diverse. But inside the classroom, I wanted small classes. And I just felt that my learning would be best sustained and supported by having women in the classroom. And then what happened? How did you get from there? And is that where you found your voice? Um, and then how did you use your voice after that? That's such a great question. Where and when did I find my voice? I And sometimes I feel like, well, I, I may not have found it till my late 30s. Um, <laughs> I loved my 30s because I really do feel like I finally found myself. Um, but you're asking about sort of college. No, I was, I was deeply intimidated in college and I felt, um, not that I didn't have a voice, but I was just, New York City was a big place and it was I was intimidated and still figuring out who I was and uh, what I wanted to be when I grew up. Um, my, my job in college was a paid internship at Sundance Channel. I knew that I liked broadcast media. I knew that I liked the medium of communication, a visual medium. So I was working for Sundance Channel. And then after I graduated, I got a job at Showtime Networks. 9-11 um, happened actually the day after I signed my first job out of college. So Monday, September 10th, I signed the papers to become an employee of Showtime. And obviously, September 11th, Tuesday morning, with the terror attacks. And living in New York City through 9-11, well, it changed the whole world, but it changed me, first of all, to be that close to feeling like I was, we were, I mean, we didn't know. We thought we were under attack. I remember sitting on my couch going, well, I guess the nuke is next. Two planes had hit. What was the third, what was the third strike going to be? So I kind of looked around and said, I guess this is it. But what happened that day, Lee, is where I found my voice, which is that I took a little camcorder. This is long before smartphones. And I went outside and I started interviewing people. Thousands of people, millions of people had to walk home because transportation had shut down. And I just started asking people what their, where did you come from? Where were you when the plate, you know, and later in the afternoon, a Boston radio station somehow got me on the phone. There was no cell service because the towers were all tied up. And I, I guess I kind of reported if you could call it that they effectively just asked me questions for an hour or so. What was it like to be in the city? What did you see? What did you hear? What did you smell? What are you feeling? 
I could talk about some of the interviews that I had done. And I think that that's when I discovered that this is a service that I'm providing to people. When people are in need of information and true information and current information, it's a very powerful position to be the person relaying that information. And that planted the seed that it took a couple more years for me to formally join journalism, but that's where the seed was planted of a mission that has been my career mission ever since to empower people with information. That has always been my guiding uh, goal in my whatever career I've been doing. That's been it. I was doing it as a journalist. I'm doing it today at the World Affairs Council. And sometimes as you're doing those interviews, it must be very stressful. It must be difficult and emotional. Um, how do you handle that? And how do you capture the true information and relay it to others? You know, well, like anything, you just have to, it's practice. Um, journalists learn how to detach from the content. I mean, you're, you're never not a human being. You never stop having opinions or emotions or feelings, but you're do, you're there to do a job. It's probably similar how police officers do it and firefighters and doctors. It's an incredibly charged moment. Um, but you have to do a job. You're there to, to provide a service. And that's what a journalist is there to provide a service to its, to, to their audience. And so um, I didn't know that on September 11, because I wasn't a journalist then I was experiencing it with everybody else. However, I can share with you that, you know, fast forward 20 years with the pandemic, and I am a professional journalist, I had to report on the pandemic with a little bit of detachment, even though I was experiencing the trauma and the confusion and the chaos alongside everybody else in my listening audience, I had a job to do. I had a service to provide, and that's what I did. Broadcasting from my kitchen during the earliest days of the pandemic, uh, live for three hours, and it was a it was a time when everybody needed the information, and I was there to give it to them. It often could be the time when you may need support. Do you have a means of support as you're doing this work? And are there people who have supported you in your career? Well, I'll tell you, I think that I'm delighted by all of the conversations that the, that we're having around mental health, especially after the pandemic. And I don't think that there are enough mental health resources for journalists in particular. Um, we are re-traumatized every day by the political coverage, the, the discourse we're seeing on social media, having to go to dangerous places to cover dangerous events. I mean, we are at risk very, very often in our work. I would love to see more mental health services for working journalists today that I had access to. Today in my career, I'm not on the front lines of journalism anymore, although I can tell you lots of scary stories about covering scary situations. I have a community of women. In fact, Lee, I just got off a call right before I logged onto this with my board of advisors. It's four women, four of us. And I got to know them through a formal fellowship program through the International Women's Forum. They are executives. There's one in Canada, one in Mexico, one in the Middle East. And we check in with one another regularly 
to hear about what's working in our careers, what isn't, our personal life, whatever it is that we need support on. It's a very safe space. It's a small group. We are on WhatsApp in between, supporting each other, celebrating each other. All of us owe it to ourselves to actively curate supportive communities. And if somebody's not supporting you in your personal professional life, how do you have time for them? You don't got time for that. No. <laughs> well, I so appreciate you sharing this. And I'm curious, what made you transition from journalism, which you clearly love, um, to the World Affairs Council? Well, a couple of things. I will fully, first of all, the my career mission has not changed to empower people with information. When the opportunity to join the World Affairs Council came about, I didn't focus as much on the work itself as on the fact that I would still be fulfilling my what makes me tick as a professional person, which is to educate people about international affairs, to empower early career professionals in their careers to become global leaders, to connect people in Atlanta in a community of like-minded people who want to talk about global issues and events. All of that was so attractive to me because that's what I was doing for 20 years as a journalist. Obviously, it's a very different type of job, but the fire in my belly is the same. And I think I would encourage anybody, the fire in your belly has got to be there, whether you're staying in a career for 50 years or changing. So there's that. It was an, I was running to an opportunity rather than ditching an old career or a bad opportunity, right? Anytime you make a big change in your life, it's got to be a positive toward something great rather than just trying to run away from a bad situation. Not that we haven't all done both, but uh, it was certainly on my mind. I wanted to make sure because I was coming out of the pandemic and journalists working on the front lines of the pandemic. Again, it was a hard two years. So think of 2020, March 2020, the pandemic hits. We all are sent home. Uh, April, May 2020, the Ahmaud Arbery tape is revealed, George Floyd here in Atlanta, Richard Brooks. So we have incredible pain in public discussion of race, racial violence, equity, inclusion. It's so raw. And we're all still also, it's piled on top of the pandemic. Then we get into the presidential race, the 2020 election. And in Georgia, as we know, was a battleground state. And we've got two Senate campaigns and a presidential race happening in Georgia. And then we have the fallout of the 2020 presidential election and two Senate runoffs. And by January 7th, 2021, I think a lot of journalists kind of went, oh my gosh, what just happened? Where did the last year go? And that's when I started to think, um, you know, maybe... I've got another 30 years of work left. Maybe there's something else for me. But I will tell a story, Lee, of I think it was June 2020. I was downtown covering a Black Lives Matter protest. I don't even know if we were calling it that at that point. Uh, it was right after the Rayshard Brooks murder. And I was wearing a KM95 mask, carrying all of my audio equipment and video equipment, and it was so scary to be in the middle of the tear gas 
and a protesters throwing bricks at the police, trying to avoid the tear gas while listening to orders from the police. Whoever was running the riot police were actually giving journalists instructions on where to stand and where to move. They were warning us, like, we're going to advance, so you need to, you know, trying to keep it all straight, trying to interview protesters. People were so angry. Uh, understandably, I was also experiencing all of my own personal emotions. And I finally said, the sun's about to go down. I better get out of here because it's not safe for anybody at this point. So I ducked into a business, kind of an entryway of a business. And there's this, all these protesters are running, 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 running. I don't want to get stampeded. And there's this huge tear gas cloud kind of roll, rumbling down the street because you can see it. And I turn around. And there's a man with a machine gun, I mean, a big gun. I mean, it wasn't a huge machine gun, but it was, a, it was a big gun. And he just looked at me and he said, time to go. So I took off running. I kind of merged into the crowd, kind of like the running of the bulls. That's kind of what it felt like. And my face is burning because I'm wearing a mask. And when you get tear gas under your mask, you know, your skin burns. And I thought... I just might be too old for this. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you were too old for it uh, at all, but I definitely can see where you might decide it's time for a change. During your journey, what did you learn about yourself? Was there anything that has surprised you about yourself? Uh, you know, what has surprised me is my... I don't want to say my capacity for growth, but I, I become more humble somehow because I, I'm I confronted with such new challenges. So for 20 years of my journalism career, I got better and better and better, right? I was really good at a lot of things, but when you change careers, you start over in so many ways new types of just new problems. Right. And I feel like I've, it's really been very humbling. I don't want to say humiliating, but there's been some real moments of, gosh, my mind is blank. I don't know how to handle this, which is uncomfortable for someone who considers herself a high achiever <laughs> and someone who considers herself, who likes to be the top 10 percentile of anything she does and to actually learn how to be the worst at something. That is what has been surprising to me. It's been an identity shift to say, not only do you not know how to do this, but you're actually bad at it. And that's okay. It's okay to be bad at something, right? But it's now your job to learn. Slowly, you know, you can Google things, you can do trainings, you can call people, you've got mentors. But now it's my job to actually build this skill set from zero, maybe not zero, but from very low. It's really surprised me that I've had that capacity. And as I say it, it's like, well, that sounds really self-congratulatory, Ricky, but I, I didn't know that I had this capacity for growth. And I think it's what's gotten me this far to just stay open, stay curious, stay humble. Well, I have to tell you that that is very inspiring. And Ricky, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show. Are there any last words of encouragement or advice that you'd like to give to our listeners? 
Well, I would say all I can speak to is what has worked for me, Lee. And that is to let my values guide me in my career. And it's always worked for me. It's never failed me. My values don't change. My experience changes. My perspective changes. My environment changes, but my values don't. And um, I would encourage anybody to, to stick with that. Ricky, thank you for sharing your time and your story with us. To our listeners, I hope you were encouraged and inspired by Ricky Bevington's journey. It is one of many that we are thrilled to share with you. If you'd like to know more about Ricky and the work she is doing for the World Affairs Council of Atlanta, check out their website at www.wacatlanta.org. Thank you for joining us and thank you for listening. And thank you to our producer, Sydney Perry, for making this podcast possible. I am Leo Katie Zach, and this is Journeys to Leadership.